This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive Magazine, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Young Turks, On the Media, The David Pakman Show, and Activism from the Unfuck It Up Project. And a quick good news, bad news for our paranoid listeners. The good news is you may not be paranoid after all. The bad news is you may not be paranoid after all. Thanks to Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald, there's mounting pressure on the U.S. to stop vacuuming up everybody's digital communications. Earlier this week, the leading high-tech companies, including Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Twitter, wrote an open letter to Congress and the Obama administration to urge the curtailing of NSA spying. The very next day, more than 500 of the world's leading authors, including five Nobel Prize winners, demanded a digital bill of rights enshrined by the U.N., The scope of NSA and corporate spying has undermined the right of all humans to remain unobserved and unmolested in their thoughts and communications, the writers said, adding, this fundamental human right has been rendered null and void through abuse of technological developments by states and corporations for mass surveillance purposes. As they put it, a person under surveillance is no longer free, a society under surveillance is no longer a democracy. Among the signatories were Margaret Atwood, Ariel Dorfman, Oran Pamuk, Hunter Grass, Arundhati Roy, Alice Walker, Jane Smiley, Umberto Eco, Richard Ford, Dave Eggers, T.C. Boyle, J.M. Koitsi, and Nawal El-Sadawi. They ended their statement powerfully, saying, We call on all states and corporations to respect these rights. We call on all citizens to stand up and defend these rights. Well, I'm not counting on governments or corporations, but I am counting on us as citizens. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. If you ever find yourself lost in the dark and you can't see, I'll be the light to guide you. Find out what we're made of when we are called to help our friends in need. You can't count on me like one, two, three, I'll be there. And I know when I need it, I can count on you like four, three, two, and you'll be there. And I've heard from people, like some guy I'm sure who was just trying to get my goat, uh, wrote to me on Twitter and, 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 and said a variation of what a lot of people have said, which is, what are you worried about? Why do you care? If you're not cooking up meth in your kitchen or building bombs to be a terrorist somewhere, this doesn't affect you. This is going after guilty people, not anyone you need to worry about. If you're not doing anything you're, you're ashamed of, what do you care? And, and I want to point out how it's already affecting you in ways that might not be obvious. Although I've heard from many of you about this, so it might be more obvious than I think. Let me tell you what happened to me the other night. And this is like the manyth time that this has happened to me. I know that's not a word, Ben, but you know what I meant, right? Manyth. Some undisclosed multiple number that I don't remember. Maybe eighth time, but I don't know. Manyth. And I know manyth of you out there have had this happen to you many times as well, because I've heard from you. Um, a couple nights ago, which is why it just came to me, I was, I was looking for photos of something we talked about in the very first Ghosts of the Ostfront episode. You remember the Soviet bone fields? Um, those things are being picked through 
uh, from what I understand, at amazing rates for souvenirs to be sold online and everything. The the Soviet bone fields from the Second World War may turn out to be one of those sort of uh, unnatural phenomena that doesn't really make it very far into the 21st century before it's not what it was. But I was looking for photos of what it was online a couple days ago. And you all know how this works, right? Especially if you have children and they're coming of age and they start doing their own internet searches and, you know, inevitably they stumble upon something that's just horrifying very easily and very innocently. And it just reminds you of, of how easy it is to do something like that. Well, if you start searching for search terms that involve trying to find photos of the dead at the Soviet bone fields before they were bone fields, you're going to end up within a relatively few number of clicks. That's a very grisly websites. And, um, and the, and the way it's set up is it kind of, you see the, the picture previewed, you click on the picture preview in Google images or whatever, and it takes you right to that picture on that website. So you never like go through the front door of that website. You never click through multiple uh, menu items to get to the photo. You just end up on the photo page, but you can see the directory sometimes, as was the case when I found this photo outside of Stalingrad that I was looking for. You can see the menu items in the directory in the corner, and I was in the war category, because obviously that's where this picture was stored, but there were a lot of other categories on this website. Some very nasty categories. I mean, you know, it's one of those gross sites where they'll show like, you know, this person stepped in front of a truck and now look at them. Um, but, but they have stuff that's, you know, murder oriented. I mean, it's nasty stuff. Not my cup of tea, but it doesn't matter. It's, I certainly think anybody who wants to should be able to see this stuff. It's freedom, right? But I started thinking about, you know, do I really want anyone knowing I'm on this site? Which is a weird thing to say, right? I mean, you know, you start thinking about, well, maybe I shouldn't click this link. I don't know where that'll take me. And then, you know, what if it's like, it's like what we said when we did the Prophets of Doom history show. And I have some torture books on my shelf. And, you know, it could be a little freaky, I imagine, if you come into my house and maybe you're house sitting for me and I'm not there and you see these torture books. But if you know me, it's no problem. Well, if they took my web search history and started looking at it, I think I would want to edit it a little bit, right? And I think when you actually start censoring yourself because you're wondering who else is watching, you begin to see how even as a byproduct, the idea of living in a more surveilled society inhibits your freedom. Now, you, can you put a price on that? It's a strange question to ask, isn't it? Can you put a price on, you know, having the freedom to know that it doesn't matter where you go online, it doesn't matter what you look at, you're protected, right? And I can already hear people saying, well, see, Dan, you shouldn't protect, be protected from looking at child porn. And that's not what I'm arguing here. Because if you're looking at child porn, I think you have every right to think you're probably being watched and you better get off of there, right? You shouldn't be doing that. But when you're doing something that there's no reason that you shouldn't be doing it, if I want to go look at Stalingrad war pictures and they're on this website that shows lots of dead bodies, that shouldn't be a problem. That's not illegal. But I'm inhibited and I don't want to go any farther and I don't want anyone to assume that they need to be watching me because look at the subjects I'm interested in. And if you think that's just paranoia, let me turn this around a little bit and show you how it works because a lot of you people are going to find out you might want people on these kind of websites monitored. Imagine that you have like an Adam Lanza situation and you find, you know, some kid goes crazy in a mall, um, shoots a bunch of people. And of course, you have a bazillion news stories afterwards telling you all about this guy. And it turns out they seize his computer and he's been going to these websites, you know, with murder and Stalingrad bonefield photos and torture and all these other things. Um, 
And you find out maybe the sheriff had been warned about this many times, but he said, listen, people have a right. You know, it's their freedom. They can go to these websites that they want to. But you have all these grieving families. You have lawyers involved. Is that sheriff really going to get out of that situation by saying, listen, it's a free country. People are allowed to look at what they want. Or do you think he's going to get crucified by people who will say he should have known what that kid he was warned, that that kid was going to these kind of websites? It's a quick step, folks, from that for the government to say, listen, we should be monitoring these kind of people, and you want us monitoring. If if Dan Carlin is going to a site that is showing anywhere on the site people being tortured, wouldn't you want me watching Dan Carlin? Doesn't he show him? And you want to see some of the other websites he goes to, all this military history stuff. He's probably a closet Nazi. You want me watching that guy. We're not saying Dan Carlin is doing something wrong, but, you know, he could be connected in a way that's maybe just one, two, or three little surveillance hops which is only, you know, 12 million people or something, um, you know, from somebody who is a problem. So we watch people like Dan Carlin, not to inhibit Dan Carlin, although he should understand that it's worth being careful and that no one is, you know, got their privacy anymore, uh, but more to deal with the radicals that someone like Dan Carlin attracts. That's kind of how these rationales go, folks. Um, now, that Bonefield story involves me going to a totally legal website, right? But what if it's one of those websites that talks about illegal stuff? What if it's some website for um, people who use crack cocaine and, and here's how you smoke it in a way that alleviates those headaches you can sometimes get? I don't know. I'm trying to think. Oh, what if you go to uh, a website that, that talks about uh, murder or, or I guess fill in the blank, right? Find, find your little sweet spot there and then say to yourself, do you want to feel like you can't go to that website because um, it's talking about... I mean, I'm writing a paper for college. That'd be a great website to do some research on, you know, even about people who go to websites like that. But if I even go there, it could associate me with that illegal activity and obviously someone's watching. I mean, do you see right there how that sort of creeps on top of you and gets you worried about potential outcomes in ways where you self-inhibit yourself? You weren't going to do anything illegal. You weren't going to do anything wrong. You had a legitimate reason for wanting to do this, but you didn't do it because you didn't want someone in a monitoring position to misconstrue what you did. And this is kind of what makes the whole public-private thing a little different, because I'm also against what I consider to be the privacy violations of private companies, and people will say that to me all the time. You know, Dan, why are you complaining about the government? There is no privacy anymore. All these companies know what you're doing. Yes, but they don't send police out to you. They don't throw you in jail. They don't, I mean, th there's a very big difference, even though I'm, I would love to see major privacy protections that are nowhere near employed now that inhibit the outside the government folks too. But there's a fundamental difference. If the government's monitoring you, that's scary. If the private corporations are monitoring you, that sucks. There's a difference. Now, one of the other things that I haven't heard talked about enough in this whole you know, situation, and yet history has shown us that it happens continually, and we're already seeing it happen in terms of, you know, things like Fourth Amendment violations with searches and whatnot. What happens with all these things, folks, is that once we become comfortable with them happening at the very highest level, for the very highest crimes, and the very most important security elements of this country, those things filter down to lower levels, right? The way this strategy always works is we go from saying we're only going to use this surveillance 
um, and this drawing of, of connections between people and all this uh, incredible understanding of, I mean, did you see the story the other day, Ben, not to go off on a tangent, but a story broke two or three days ago saying that when the government wants to infect someone's computer or really spy on someone, they will intercept an order, a mail order that someone makes you know, to a company, say maybe you want a thumb drive and they send it through the mail and the government intercepts the thumb drive on the way to you, opens up the package, inserts a thumb drive that has spy materials on it that will send information back to them, you know, reseal the box and then send it on its way to you. The way these things get justified, folks, is because we're going after the worst of the worst, right? What happens when you're just going after instead of the worst of the worst? This boils down to just going after the worst. Maybe, you know, you start saying that this is a wonderful tool to go after drug smugglers. Wonderful tool to go after child porn users. I mean, you you start to go right to the next level, right? Right. Well, I, I suppose people would say, "Listen, Dan, uh, drug smugglers are not as bad as child porn viewers," and um, I think I'd agree with that. Um, but but my point is, is that, that there's a level below terrorism, which is sort of the holy grail of reasons to to do all these things. Um, you know, weapons of mass destruction in the hands of terrorism. That's the holy grail. There's a level below that. That's the next level. We're going to justify the use of all these tools for, and it's going to be very hard for you to say no because if these are effective tools of protecting the country from terrorism, why aren't they effective tools for protecting the country from drug smuggling? How many hops away, and hops is the official word that the government uses, they're allowed three hops, according to to these uh, recent rulings in the court, three hops of surveillance. So one hop would be, you know, anyone in your address book. Two hops would be everyone in all of those people's address books. Three hops is everyone in all of everybody's address books that they've already, I mean, so you, 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 you are allowed to surveil three hops away from the current individual. Do you think you're three hops away from a drug smuggler because i bet you aren't but i so, so in other words you there may be no three hop way to connect you to terrorism but i bet if we lower it one level we're already all in that web okay so already justifiably surveilled upon by the current rules um and then what happens when you devolve that down to an even lower level Folks, once you make the claim that these are crime-fighting tools, they will be used to fight more crimes because the justification is the same. We're just going after crime. And again, you may say to yourself, who cares, Dan? It's crime. That's what we're trying to go after. If the tools just get better, then our crime-fighting gets better. Well, but once you violate the rules that protect us all, the crime-fighting gets oppressive. I mean, we told you that story not that long ago about the, the guy who had the, had, had taken in for 12 hours of cavity searches and, uh, and, and x-rays and all these things because supposedly he was clenching his butt cheeks in a suspicious way. Well, there have been a story or two after that that's come out very similarly. Essentially, we've, we've taken down this, this worry about Fourth Amendment rights, at, even at the local level, where you still have a wonderful amount of cops doing a great job, but it only takes one bad one to destroy a lot of good ones' reputations. And we're seeing more and more of these people, perhaps because there's more and more cameras out there catching them, that are violating your rights at a level that if we put more emphasis on them, wouldn't be happening. But once this devolves down where it's, you know, we have a war against all these things and the civilian population is part of the problem until they can prove otherwise sometimes, um, then you should be justifiably worried about police officers being able at your local level to tap into the kind of databases the NSA has. And while people will say, Dan, that just shows how uninformed you are about the NSA, all that stuff, no one has access to that. And they jealously guard it because this is a, a bureaucrat. I mean, they won't even share it with the CIA sometimes. They're not going to share, share it with the local sheriff. No, but the idea is connected to the Homeland Security fusion centers and all these things about sharing information that goes out um, 
you know, in the old days to almost nobody and federal databases hooked up to the little computer in the police officer's car. I guess what I'm saying here, folks, is once you break down these barriers that say you can't do these under any circumstances, it becomes very easy to say, well, we were going after the worst of the worst, and then we thought, well, this is so effective. Why would we inhibit ourselves from using it against the worst? And then you're using it against the pretty bad, and then you're using it against the moderately bad, and then you're using it against the public nuisance because, well, this is how law enforcement works. We, do you want us to not use tools? I bet you don't want us to have cop cars, too. We'll just, we'll just take horses everywhere. I'm not trying to be flippant, folks, but I've seen this dynamic work so many times already. These are just good crime-fighting tools in the minds of a lot of people, so why would you not use them against all the other crimes we want solved there? The problem is, is it's becoming a surveillance society, ladies and gentlemen. Do you really think you're going to not feel like you can't go to certain websites when you could think that your local law enforcement could see what you're doing if they wanted to? What sort of websites is that guy we just pulled over uh, looking at? You know what? Check him out just because if this guy's going to a bunch of, you know, target shooting websites, and stuff, we, we, we have a better chance of running into a handgun in that car. It's just for our own safety. Do a quick web search on this guy uh, and check into the Fusion Center database before we actually walk up to the car. I don't want to get shot. And I can think of a million reasons already. Last time, it was too good to... One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Jeffrey Tubin is basically the voice of the mainstream media when it comes to hating on Edward Snowden. Oh, Edward Snowden shouldn't have given those secrets to the press. Uh, Jeffrey, you're part of the press. You work at CNN. Oh, I don't care. He shouldn't have given it. Oh, I love the government. Oh, my God. Snowden's such a bad guy. So, well, now, here's the problem with that. Uh, this week, a federal judge ruled that the NSA program was unconstitutional, therefore clearly vindicating Edward Snowden, saying that what he did was whistleblowing. He whistleblew on a program that was unconstitutional. And that has now been ruled as such. Now, that federal judge is not the end-all, be-all. It can go all the way up to the Supreme Court. But it's the first time we've had a federal judge rule on it, and it's very important, right? Tubin says, well, I mean, I can't really deny that, although I'd love to. So let's begin this discussion with Tubin, Anderson Cooper moderating, and then you'll hear from Glenn Greenwald in a little bit as well. Jeff, a federal judge has now said that, that, that the NSA program almost certainly violates the Constitution. Does that vindicate what Edward Snowden did? Well, I don't think so, because he still took classified information and disclosed it in a completely illegal way that's requiring tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of, of work by the American government to, to redo, plus potentially exposed it to the Chinese and the Russians. So I don't support what Snowden did at all. I don't think this vindicates him, but it certainly comes a lot closer to vindicating him than any previous development has. 
I liked it. God, you know, we had to clean up his mess and all those things that we were doing illegally and unconstitutionally. Now we got to redo them. Ugh. That would seem to be a pretty good argument against any whistleblower. Uh, now you're going to make me do paperwork and do it the legal way? Oof. Obviously, traitor to America. So Greenwald's going to come in and regulate. Let's watch the rest of the interview. How could it not vindicate him? Well, let's just use common sense for a minute. Here is an American citizen working inside of the government who discovers that the United States government is doing things without the knowledge of the American people that is so illegal, so against the core constitutional guarantees of the Constitution that a George Bush-appointed judge today said that it's not even a close call. He said James Madison would be aghast if he knew that the U.S. government would be collecting extremely invasive data on every single American without any remote suspicion, let alone probable cause. And I think it's not only the right, but the duty of an American citizen in Edward Snowden's situation to come forward at great risk to himself and inform his fellow citizens about what it is their government is doing in the dark that is illegal. I love Tubin's face throughout the interview. He's got that look like, uh, frickin' Madison. <laughs> now I gotta deal with the founding fathers and the damn constitution. I just wanted to cover this up for the government. I work for the mainstream media. Now, to be fair, look, CNN is at least having this debate on TV, so I commend Anderson Cooper and CNN for doing that. Uh, I agree with Glenn Greenwald, so I don't have much to say on that. Let's go back to Tubin and Greenwald fighting. What should an American citizen do if they see something they believe is unconstitutional and they're inside the system? He can go to an inspector general. He can go to Congress. He, he can go work through the established channels that every person who has access to classified information has. It is simply not a tenable way to run a government if every of the hundreds of thousands of people of security clearances who have security clearances suddenly decide that they don't like something and that they can then disclose it. Yes, it is true that one judge has vindicated Snowden's interpretation of the law. This is far from the last word on this subject, and this is not the way the system is supposed to work. So uh, Tubin basically saying the establishment will be back. Okay, we're not going to let this judge decide this. Now, to be fair to Tubin's point, I understand what he's saying. Everybody gets what he's saying. You can't have everybody that has national security clearance going, blah, here's our national security secrets, right? But if you notice, so far, uh, Snowden hasn't revealed anything that shows what our actual spying on Russia, China, etc. has done. It's not like, oh, hey, by the way, here's what we found out about you, uh, etc. He hasn't revealed those actual secrets. What he's revealed is how the government works and how it's spying on Americans and world leaders, right? And of course that's got world leaders upset, but not the content of that. So now look, Tupin would be right if we had a functioning system. That if somebody like Snowden was inside the system and said, hey look, I'm gonna be a whistleblower and I'm gonna go to my su supervising officer and say, this is not right, it's illegal or it's unconstitutional, and then there was a process and then he'd be vindicated within the process. But we don't have that process. Every time someone has done that, They've been arrested. In fact, President Obama has charged more people with the Espionage Act, more whistleblowers with the Espionage Act, than all other presidents combined, and then doubled and nearly tripled. Okay, So the system is broken. Jeffrey, if the system worked, we wouldn't have this issue in the first place. That's why they've got to go to the press and say the government isn't listening. How could you not see that? Well, Greenwald says something very similar here to end the debate. Let's watch. Giving the documents to Glenn Greenwald is not an orderly or fair or 
ultimately responsible way to run a government. If, if you look at the stories, for example, over the last decade that are the most widely regarded in journalism, what it involves is people in the government discovering illegal behavior on the part of political officials done in secret, coming to journalists who then report on it responsibly. That's how we learned about the CIA black site that Dana Priest and the Washington Post exposed, or the warrantless wiretapping program that the New York Times was able to talk about. That is why we have a free press. That's very much part of the fabric of American democracy. It is worth mentioning that the reason for all this is not because the NSA is some inherently evil organization. There are real threats to the United States out there. Oh, please spare me. Look, are there real threats to the U.S.? Of course, of course there's real threats. But you can't use that as a blanket excuse for we're going to make sure that whistleblowers get punished and tracked down to the end of the earth. That's your excuse for spying unconstitutionally on 300 million Americans and violating all of our privacy. No, no, that's what the establishment and the powers that be say to protect the crimes they've committed. And if you use Jeffrey Tubin's logic, then, well, Daniel Osberg, I mean, that you shouldn't have reported on the Pentagon Papers. That you should have just, that's not how the government works. You should have just handed the Pentagon Papers to Richard Nixon. Yeah, Richard Nixon was the one keeping them secret. Oh, deep throat, you shouldn't have gone to Woodward and Bernstein and gone to the Washington Post to tell us about Watergate. You should have just gave it right back to, that information right back to Nixon. Yes. But the government was keeping that secret for a reason. It's their abuses that they're hiding. The same is true today and now backed up by a federal judge that says Snowden was right. It is unconstitutional. And undeterred, Tubin keeps saying, nope, government's always right. You should have gone through the process, which is to go turn yourself in and have the government arrest you and give you the manning treatment. I don't think so. And luckily, he's lost the country on this. I think the majority of the American people don't agree with Tubin, don't agree with the mainstream media. On Wednesday, the NSA got a report card. The Intelligence and Communications Technologies Review Group released its 300-page report a month early. White House spokesman Jay Carney explained the decision in a briefing. While we had intended to release the review group's full report in January, as I said earlier, given inaccurate and incomplete reports in the press about the report's content, we felt it was important to allow people to see the full report to draw their own conclusions. Richard Clark is a member of that review group, a cybersecurity expert who has advised three presidents. He says that Carney's concerns were well-founded. Well, let's see. The New York Times on the front page had a subhead to the effect that the review group was going to recommend the NSA program continue, and our recommendation used the word terminate. Uh, so. <laughs> 
Slate noted how strongly one of the panel's proposed changes echoed the decision of Judge Richard Leon earlier this week that the NSA's collection of telephony metadata was probably unconstitutional. Well, we worked without any knowledge of what was going on in that court. It's not up to us to say things are constitutional or not. We certainly came to the same conclusion as the judge did in terms of the need for a court order before you access this kind of information. The government initially told us though that would be too hard. We looked into it and we concluded it wouldn't be hard at all. Why wouldn't it be hard? The FISA court has been set up to be extremely responsive in emergency situations where you can go in and say, look, the Boston bombing just occurred. We need these pieces of information from AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, whoever. And you can usually get a warrant for that information within a few hours if you have to. And there's a provision in the law that says you can get the warrant after the fact in an emergency. We, we didn't see any high burden being placed on law enforcement to have to get a warrant. But isn't one of the criticisms that the FISA court has been almost a rubber stamp and basically stepped away from doing any real adjudication? Well, I know that's a, a popular belief. We actually got access to the FISA court's classified opinions. And the, the truth is the FISA court has been giving NSA a hard time. They actually do a very good job of supervision. We would like to see the FISA court more diverse in its membership. Right now, 11 of the 12 judges come from one party. And we'd like to see the FISA court have a professional staff to help it, including a public advocate. So you're saying it's, it's wrong to assume that the FISA court has been allowing widespread access to this data? I thought that there were very few cases in which those requests were denied. There have been very few cases in which they've been denied. There have been many cases in which they held up requests, sent them back, had them redone. There have been several cases where the FISA court restricted future operations because uh, NSA had done things in ways that the FISA court wasn't happy with. We'd like to see the FISA court more aggressive, but the fact is, behind the veil of secrecy, they have been doing a pretty good job. You also wrote that there's very little evidence to show that this kind of metadata collection is actually effective. You must have a pretty high clearance because most of us have no way of knowing whether this approach is effective or not. Now, there are two different points. One is, effective or not, should it be done with a court order? and should the government hold the data in its own files. Second consideration is, has it really done us all that good? And with regard to the metadata on the telephony, we did have very high clearances. We did see all the data. We went through it case by case. We came to the conclusion that it was not necessary in any case where it was used. There was never a case where it stopped a terrorist attack. The report also addresses the issue of national security letters, which are basically subpoenas with gag orders attached. Uh, we've talked about this quite a lot. You've suggested some changes in that area. Uh, pretty radical changes, according to some people. What we've suggested is, again, that you should go to the FISA court and get a court order. Now, I know that would be difficult because there are 20,000 of these orders every year. But all that means, in, in our view, is that you need more judges. The way it works today is an FBI supervisor can sign off on a national security letter, and without any outside review, 
they get the power of subpoena and the power then to gag the person that they've subpoenaed. So if they come to you at NPR and say, uh, we want all your records, you can't tell anybody that. We found both of those parts of the national security letter a little difficult to square with constitutionality. We think they should probably go to the FISA court. And the assumption should be that there is no gag order. We know there'll be some cases with foreign counterintelligence operations where you'll never be able to tell people about it, but they shouldn't all have a perpetual gag order. What surprised you most about the reactions to your report, both on Capitol Hill and in the media? We got two kinds of uh, reactions. The review group recommends everything staying the same, and the review group surprised everyone by being very radical in its recommendations. There was one blog that uh, that was entitled Awkward, um, that this report is going to be really awkward for the president. Actually, you know, I read that after meeting with the president. The president was very pleased <laughs> by the report. But I, I understand why people think it's awkward for the president, because we're recommending some things that he has in the past rejected. But I think we're we're hopeful that we've made a persuasive case. After spending so many years in government... You really think that there'll be a change? I do. Look, government is not implacable. And when you have a a leader like Barack Obama who is open-minded and who has the guts to bring in a group of outsiders like us and say, tell me what you think we should do and don't hold back, I think change is possible. Also, there is bipartisan support for doing something about this. There's a lot of bipartisan support, and that's uh, utterly amazing uh, because there's not bipartisan support for anything else right now. Richard, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Richard Clark is a member of the Intelligence and Communications Technologies Review Group. The NSA has repeatedly claimed that the bulk collection of phone records and other metadata only allows the NSA to look for trends and make connections and see who might be a shared contact between others who aren't specifically identified. But an article on TechCrunch, TechCrunch, sorry, now shows that a researcher has proven that the NSA can identify individuals in most cases, just by having their phone records. And to be honest, this isn't really a long stretch to imagine this. When you get a call on your cell phone from a number you don't recognize, if you punch that number into Google, very often you'll figure out who it was simply by doing that. And if you don't, having access to other, for example, social media platforms, etc., could certainly help you track down who is calling you, who is who a certain number belongs to. And that's essentially what the Stanford study did, Lewis. This is Jonathan Mayer. He's a Stanford researcher. He found that he could easily match so-called metadata to individual names with little more than a Google search. He said if a few academic researchers 
can get this far this quickly, it's difficult to believe that the NSA would have any trouble identifying the overwhelming majority of American phone numbers. So using a crowdsourced public database of voluntarily submitted phone records, Metaphone, they sampled 5,000 numbers from their crowdsourced data set, and then they queried Yelp, Google Places, Facebook directories, and with just those three sources, they matched just over a quarter of the numbers that they have. Now, conservatively, if you really put any effort into doing this, they randomly sampled 100 numbers from their data set, ran Google searches, and in under an hour, they were able to get 60 of the 100 associated with specific people or businesses. And when they combined that with Facebook, Yelp, and Google Places, that went up to 73%. This is not a big surprise, Lewis, right? This is kind of obvious, this idea that it's only metadata, we know nothing else. Well, with very little effort, you can find out much more. With very little effort, using resources that everyone has available, not to mention the resources that the NSA would have at their disposal, which could be um, just a, a simple matter of searching all of their records and everything they have on file. Um, I, I would assume that they would probably be able to come up with about 90%, match 90% of the numbers they have. No question about it. And this is not about whether government agencies should or should not have this information of whose phone number belongs to everybody, right? That's a separate conversation. We just can't have an honest conversation about this if we pretend it's just metadata, it's just we don't have anything else and that that's not it. Anybody sitting in front of a computer with access to the Internet could easily match three out of four of those metadata numbers that are collected and I, I just don't get why anybody is surprised by this. It really seems pretty obvious to me. The question then becomes, does this keep us safe? Kind of a more pragmatic, practical question. And extensively, Lewis, we've talked about how increasingly nobody, the NSA, President Obama, etc., seems to be able to make the connection between this and increased safety. Okay, what what do you think is the best thing of the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is, this, is this the that hard of a question? Is it that is. What? It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right. Well, you know what? None of us know what the what what's good about this show. What None we know is have, we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious. I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman show at davidpakman.com. A recent piece in the Washington Post confirms that the FBI can download malware onto your computer that will allow them to access your webcam and spy on you without you having any idea. Usually when your webcam is on, a little green light will flash, which will in, in, indicate that it's on and somebody can watch what you're doing but they have sophisticated this to the point where you won't even be able to tell the light will not go off now the reason why the washington post was writing about this was because they were covering a story regarding someone that goes by the name mo that the fbi was investigating mo had made bomb threats uh toward the United States after the Aurora, Colorado shooting happened. And of course, that was the movie theater shooting that made national headlines. Now, the FBI has been trying to track this 
guy down. They think that he's probably in Iran right now, but they are unsure. And in an effort to catch him, they decided to download malware onto his computer. The malware would allow them to access his webcam. So now we have confirmation that this is really happening. This is something that we've suspected for quite some time. Everyone already knows it, but it's good to have confirmation of it. So now good news, bad news. Good news is they do get a warrant to do this, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the, what you should do, that's the right process to do it. And when we think that there's a suspect we gotta chase down, getting a warrant and then invading his privacy at that point is what we're supposed to do, right? That's how we catch the bad guys. Uh, but we have to have probable cause and you give the guy a due process, right? Now, that's the good news. The bad news is they say, don't worry, we won't abuse this. We use it mainly for terrorists. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, right? So I want to read you uh, the comment from someone who works for the FBI. Uh, and and it, it gives you a sense of how vague they are in terms of their use of this type of malware. The FBI has been able to covertly activate a computer's camera without triggering the light that lets users know it's recording for several years and has used that technique mainly in terrorism cases or the most serious criminal investigations. So the word mainly is, is a little strange, right? Because no, it's yeah, it's over. They're not using it just terrorism. They say most serious offenses. That means whatever we think is serious. What yeah. isn't serious? Exactly. You have to is define there, is, that. Yeah, is our drug gang serious? Of course, they're incredibly serious. Murder, yes. Rape, yes. Right? And then sexual assault, yes, of course, right? What isn't serious? Yeah. Right? So they can pretty much use it wherever they like. Exactly. Um, another thing to keep in mind is, you know, whenever it comes to unreasonable searches and seizures, and when it comes to authorities obtaining a warrant to search your home, oftentimes they can seize something that is directly related to the alleged crime. But when it comes to your online activity and your online data, the issue with this is authorities collect everything, all of your emails. They they keep track of what you're doing through your webcam, and that is also problematic because they collect everything. They're not supposed to be able to do that, but since our laws have not been reformed or they haven't been updated to deal with this new technology, they have a little bit of a loophole. They can do whatever they want when it comes to online activity. Yeah, and we're told by the establishment, you know, you'll see, it. now we're supposed to do a great story about this, and I always say Prince definitely better, right? On TV, you'll see people say, well, come on, but it hasn't been abused yet. And former Attorney General Mike uh, Mukasey was just on Fox News the other day, and he's saying, well, there's potential for abuse, but it hasn't been abused. First of all, how do we know, right? Second of all, we already know that you targeted uh, the Occupy guys for infiltration, right? Uh, you targeted peace groups during the Bush years, Quakers even, and, and the list goes on and on. So we know that you infiltrated those groups, innocent Muslim students, right? And you say, uh, and you have this capacity to be, look at, to be able to look in through their webcams. Now you're telling me the government is just, they're gonna just say, oh, you know what, that weapon, Occupy threatening downtown Manhattan is not serious. We're not going to use that. Yeah, you're sure about that? You're sure about that? Knowing that they've already infiltrated those groups unconstitutionally, by the way. Exactly. So it's not like they have a high degree of, you know, uh, regard for our constitution or our laws. What the NYPD did with Muslim, innocent Muslim students, was totally illegal, but they didn't give a damn. They're the cops. They did whatever the hell they wanted. And you can't blame anyone for being paranoid in the, in the climate that we're living in right now. Think about it for a second. 
Someone can watch, a, a, an official can watch your every single move in your own home, in your own home through your webcam. That is scary stuff. That is supposed to be the one place where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. I mean, your home is supposed to be your castle. If anybody walks up to your home, these days in America, we say you can shoot them in the face. <laughs> but yet the government comes into your home or could come into your home and watch everything that's in your home by activating your webcam. And you don't even know about it. But don't worry, they say. They would never do that, I'm sure. And by the way, I remember somebody recently wrote an article about Michael Hastings, right? Mm -hmm. And they mentioned that something that I had told him, he had talked to me, and I said, look, some, some people I know are covering their webcams with a piece of tape just in case. And he derisively said, like, oh, that was the pool that Michael Hastings swam in. Right, like we're all nut jobs because we're paranoid and concerned about, I don't know, government officials spying on us through our webcam. Like, oh, like the government could look through your webcam. You guys are crazy. Wait, what was the story we just did? Oh, right, the government can look through your webcam. Huh, interesting. And I will turn to see no one else But I'm consumed by your grace and wonder I'm finding you as I lose myself I'm finding you as I lose I, I want to gaze into your eyes I want to lose my soul to you This Best of the Left activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project. Today's campaign, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Now, it's no secret that in today's environment of connectivity, more and more of our lives and information are available for public consumption. What most of us don't realize is that attempts to subvert our constitutional freedoms using online tools began decades ago. The Electronic Frontier Foundation was on the front lines of the fight to stymie those attempts from the beginning. Founded in 1990, EFF has been monitoring civil rights infringements since before the internet was a household word, let alone a household utility. Racking up victories in the courts has been the core to their strategy, with the explosion of online journalism, social media, and constantly changing technology, not to mention the NSA being given carte blanche to rifle through the information of private citizens, their workload has increased exponentially. Wisely, this has led to a broader game plan. While the bulk of EFF's work still focuses on legal action, a very expensive endeavor, especially for a group that relies on individual donations, they have branched out to incorporate grassroots efforts. Their action center should be a regular destination for activists of all involvement levels. Whether you're most comfortable signing petitions and autofill letters to your elected officials, attending events, or starting your own campaigns, there are plenty of ways to help. EFF's action center includes petitions from legislators like Bernie Sanders, who has been relentless at seeking the release of information surrounding surrounding the NSA spying program and introducing legislation to curb its reach. It also links to EFF spearheaded projects like blogger rights, surveillance self-defense, teaching copyright, and the Transparency Project. Their website, EFF.org, is an invaluable resource for anyone who uses the internet and needs information about their online rights. EFF even has an entire section on the NSA at EFF.org slash NSA dash spying. Bookmark the Electronic Frontier Foundation site, return to it often, and support their efforts by spreading the word. Many citizens aren't aware that there are groups fighting for their rights, and cluing them into the work being done by groups such as EFF can embolden those who feel helpless to act. 
And if First Amendment and or online freedoms are an area where you have a particular interest and background, be sure to check out the About page for volunteer, intern, and staff positions. One thing should be very clear from all of 2013's NSA revelations and the clips in today's show. The need for EFF and groups like them will only become more important going forward. Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy you can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up? Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? I think the parameters of uh, whatever reform, in air quotes, effort uh, comes out of this are sort of going to be determined uh, by some of the legal decisions that come out of this. And we're only just now starting to get the first significant uh, legal rulings on any of this stuff. And the reason why is not because these questions were not constitutionally challenged in the courts in the past, but because up until Edward Snowden, no one had any standing. You know what standing means, right? Standing is the ability to say that you were somehow affected by what it is you're suing over. And if you don't have that and you can't prove that, then you can't, you know, bring your issue in front of a judge. So in the past, people who tried to bring up the, the potential to be uh, spied on by the NSA or have your actions inhibited because you're worried about being spied upon, whatever it is, no one could prove standing up till now. And some have even suggested that the government set it up this way, including one of these judges who just ruled on this, that Congress and, and, and the executive branch crafted this whole thing. The Congress and the executive branch actually set it up so that when people wanted to challenge the constitutionality of these laws, they wouldn't be able to prove that they were affected by it. In other words, put them in a catch-22 deliberately so that the laws never saw a constitutional challenge and were never in front of a judge to decide. Edward Snowden screwed that all up because all of a sudden people can prove that they were, one way or another, affected by what they're suing over. The first thing that Edward Snowden talked about, his early releases, were about metadata, which is the stuff the phone company collects, you know, about phone usage, times of calls, places of calls, all that kind of stuff. Very, very basic business information. Um, but because that was the first thing Snowden talked about, that was the first stuff that was brought up in lawsuits. And so the stuff that has reached the farthest now in the lawsuit um, road towards perhaps a Supreme Court ruling on some of this is the metadata stuff. But no one has decided that the stuff that the government's even done with the metadata is legal yet. The problem is, is that no one had standing. The first cases that have standing happened since the last Common Sense show we did. And interestingly enough, these two cases involve judges who are now seeing more of the secret info than any judges who don't sit on the secret FISA court have ever had a chance to look at. Part of what makes these decisions important and relevant is these judges have a significant amount of stuff now that tell them what the government's doing. And the first judge to come through with his ruling is one in Washington, D.C., who ruled just the other day that the metadata collection that the government is doing is almost certainly unconstitutional. He described it as Orwellian. And I would highly recommend that you go read his entire ruling and then the one that came out the very next week, practically, that disagreed 180 degrees from his ruling out of New York. Both federal courts, different jurisdictions, different circuits. Now, the first thing I thought about 
is if one judge can look at the exact same case, and these are the exact same ones, if one judge can look at, at one case and see it as Orwellian, and yet another look at the same one and say, yes, but it's constitutional, perhaps the legendary flexibility of the U.S. Constitution to adapt and change over time has reached a point where that's not a benefit anymore. If you can make Orwellian constitutional, something's broken down. Although, you know, there are wonderful quotes throughout history that are meant to be compliments to the Constitution's flexibility that when you look at them now, sound like um, lawyers looking for a loophole, to get back to that idea. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt famously said about the Constitution, again, while trying to praise it, but looking at back at it now, it sounds like a man looking for loopholes when he wrote, quote, our Constitution is so simple and practical that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. End quote. Well, if you mean essential form to mean the actual language on the piece of paper, that's absolutely true. If you mean essential form to involve the spirit of the, you know, idea, then, then we're long past that. Uh, we're, we're past the letter of the law. We're way past the spirit of the law. But what, what Roosevelt said that is a wonderful description of what's happening now. It's just a constitution that is so flexible we can create a Big Brother style surveillance state and have it be constitutional at the same time. Just so you know, um, both of these decisions are worth reading. They're both about 65 to 70 pages long, but if you've never read one of these things, a ton of it's like fluff. Background info, former cases cited, all this stuff. If you don't want to read that, there's about 15 important quality pages that talk about the rationales behind the decision and what they thought of these things. In each one of those decisions, make sure to read the footnotes. Sometimes that's the most interesting part. Uh, in, the, in the Washington, D.C. ruling, it is the most interesting part where he talks about what these programs do and the way the government justifies them, and he names He's a 2002 George W. Bush appointee, the guy in D.C., and he nailed the government over, over essentially contradicting itself in the same legal brief. Um, what it all boils down to, just so you know from a little legal standpoint of how this is working, when it comes to that one little area, the metadata that we're talking about, the phone data information, the government justifies everything it's done with the collections of billions and billions and billions, I mean, monthly um, uh, pieces of information about metadata. The government justifies all this based on a late 1970s court ruling. The court ruling had said that you didn't have a privacy right to the records of the phone company, right? They're a private business, and when they keep records on the calls you make and everything, that's not yours. You don't have a right to consider that private. Now, just so you know, that case involved one person. There was a woman who had her house robbed, and soon after the robbery, an obscene phone caller started calling her regularly and said he was the robber. So the law enforcement folks... Um, used a, a method where they could, they could see, you know, monitor this guy's calls for a month and see if he called that person's number. He did. He was found guilty. It was taken to the court. The court said, listen, you don't have a privacy right connected to that phone number. The phone company knows and the phone company can work with the government and, and, and they did. 
But the judge in the Washington, D.C. case said, listen, this is apples and oranges. To use that case to justify something that sucks up billions and billions of records, to compare the relationship in that one-time deal when law enforcement asked the phone company to cooperate with an ongoing relationship where you feed every day in real-time info directly from the consumer to the company, from the company to the government, is apples and oranges, basically. If I can remember the quote he used exactly, he said something like, you know, there was going to come a day when technological change made that 1970s case no longer a good uh, precedent to cite. He says, unfortunately for the government, that time has come now. And so basically he called into question the government's giant expansion of that one little case for one month into a justification for everything here, as though the court of the late 1970s significantly meant this to be the outcome. And as he pointed out in his ruling, the courts of the 1970s could not have imagined, it was science fiction to imagine government capabilities as they exist now in the late 1970s. It was just as much science fiction for them to imagine cell phone capabilities. And that was the other thing that the judge in Washington, D.C. focused on a ton. He says, the difference between what a phone in 1978 would tell you about the privacy of the user and what a phone from 2012 will tell you about the privacy of the user is night and day. So it's not even an analogous situation. The judge in New York disagreed entirely. He said, who is he as a federal judge to say that the ruling by the Supreme Court in the late 1970s didn't apply here? He said, if a court wants to do that, the Supreme Court can do it. He said that there are extraordinary circumstances in this war on terror that justify, you know, uh, 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 the violation sometimes of, of old norms. My favorite part of the piece was where he talked about the fact that um, you know, these people shouldn't even bring this suit because Congress had intended for all this to say secret, so we shouldn't even be basically be talking about this, and said that everything appeared constitutional to him, essentially. Now, I am not questioning either one of these judges or, or, or really patting them on the back. I'm just pointing out a reality here that we need to understand when we talk about even the Supreme Court as though these are somehow legal scholars from online who are unbiasedly looking at all these things and coming up with decisions that are constitutional. These are political animals just like everyone else. All right. And the way you can tell is this New York ruling and this D.C. ruling could not be farther apart. And they're two good judges looking at the same thing. Now, these are both going to be appealed and they'll go to the separate appellate courts. If they disagree, too, this could easily fall into the lap of the Supreme Court. Now, those of us who watch the court regularly know that the court enjoys disappointing those people who want, you know, legitimate answers to long running societal problems that are clear and black and white. The court likes to, generally in proportion to how much you really want an answer on the question, the court likes to choose a little peripheral question that's, that sort of doesn't look big to us, but there's a legal scholar question, a rule on that and leave the, ma the main overriding issue you wanted an answer on unaddressed. So let's not be surprised. At the same time, I am not convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that the court's going to rule the way I want on this. I think it was a, uh, Thomas Drake in his New Yorker article where, you know, he did the big whistleblower for the NSA. Uh, he talked about running in, it was either him or, or the, or the Rourke lady, um, talked about running into General Michael Hayden when he was the head of the NSA and calling him on directly deciding to, you know, blow past the Fourth Amendment. And they talked about, you know, what's going to happen when the courts look into this. And he said, I've been assured already that the, that the court will rule, you know, in favor of this program, maybe seven to two. 
In other words, way back when they were starting to decide to, to, to make these moves, they'd already considered the possibility of it reaching the court, and Hayden's quoted in that article as saying, and I've been assured, we never find out from who, that the court's already going to be on board with this. So I'm not real convinced that this is going to go the way I want it to go, but let's not pretend that when the court rules one way or the other, that they're totally unbiased observers who don't have a, a, a political opinion, just a view of the law, because, folks, if that's true, why do we care so much about confirmations? Why is it such a big deal to Democrats and Republicans, for example, if the other side gets to seat a Supreme Court justice or two, they could change the whole balance of the court. The balance of what? The balance of how the law looks? No, the balance of how they look at the law. So let's not pretend this isn't all political. You know, we could have a Supreme Court say this is all totally constitutional and have it be Orwellian at the same time. Am I the only person out there that thinks the words Orwellian and U.S. Constitution shouldn't be used together in the same sentence? Jay, this is Ken from Illinois. I was really impressed and moved by the podcast about the Pope. I grew up Catholic, never really followed it, just did it because, you know, uh, went to, to um, religious education, church, got communion, and later confirmation just because it happened, because that was my mother's family, not because it ever really resonated with me. In fact, it's the opposite. I mean, it seemed more about the rituals and everything else. And I grew up and, uh, you know, became very disgusted about the sexual abuse practices that they had and, you know, have no intention of ever going back to the church. Uh, that being said, I'm really proud of this, of the Pope for the poverty reasons. I think you've done a nice job presenting the fact that they really, the poor and the underclasses, whatever they're under, need an advocate. And I think all of us really need to get on board. Not with the Pope from a religious perspective, but he needs to be one of many institutions that are really focusing on the poor and the inequities of how our money works. And so people should definitely not dismiss him if they're not religious, but he, he makes a good point and, you know, just follow that and see what other institutions can start really focusing on the poor. I think schools should start teaching kids about what poverty really means and about how money adds up for people who already have it and how it goes the other way for people who don't. So thank you for that. I thought it was presented really well and I appreciate it. So have a nice day. Hi, Jay. My name is Zach um, from San Francisco. I just got done listening to your episode on Time Magazine's Man of the Year, The Pope. And I have to say, I really liked it. It was a nice, well-rounded, and balanced, progressive. I mean, you do that with all your shows anyway. But there was a perspective I wanted to put out there that I don't quite often hear in progressive punditry. And that's that the Catholic Church tends to know what they're doing. They tend to side with the winners. They, they, they didn't get to amass what they are today by not being intelligent. 
Pope Francis was very... I read an article um, a while back about how he was vocal about Argentina supporting civil unions and not same-sex marriage, which is a very progressive mindset for a Catholic. Those kind of things would have been discussed during conclave when he was elected. I'd like to think that the cardinals or is it bishops, I don't remember who does conclave, who elected him knew what they were getting and put him in place for a specific purpose. He's very great on social issues, and he's even addressing the child molestation stuff, which is a deep, dark, horrible problem in the Catholic Church, and the last pope just completely ignored it and pretended like it wasn't happening. I think the Catholic Church knows what it's doing, and it's trying to step in the right direction. And it's trying to do that without harshly severing ties with some devout people who have always thought it's been about this one thing. So they're trying to shift focus and not be as jarring as possible. At least on this issue, I'm going to try to be an optimist. Anyway, love your show. Thanks. Jay, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Uh, listening to your commentary at the end of the Corporations Are Immoral rebroadcast, I have thoughts on market and capitalism and corporations, but I just wanted to point the, the logical inconsistency in the way you're dealing with the issue. Corporations are corporate entities. They're you know, these imaginary paper entities that don't have actual souls. They don't have volition. I buy your argument that they can't make moral judgments. They only act the way you know their written documents, their instructions, their shareholders, whatever, require them to. But by the same token, governments are just you know constitutions, treaties, laws, paper entities, they're equally quote-unquote imaginary, and so can't strictly be moral. They don't have a soul. They can't uh, respond in that way. Now, both entities, governments and corporations, are effectively run by and managed by human beings who can make moral distinctions and make choices that we can judge to be either moral or immoral, but your argument to say that Corporations are amoral and therefore outside of the kind of right and wrong paradigm of morality, but that government can derive morality from the actions of the individual working to effectuate that government doesn't hold water. It's either one or the other. Either you know entities like governments and corporations are amoral, and we can only judge the actions of the individual who are running or working for those organizations, or, you know, the actions of those people can lend moral credence to the corporate entity. So, uh, I will call back later, but as always, stay awesome. Keep it up, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. First of all, a couple of reminders. The Stitcher Awards are still going on uh, between now and January 13th. You can vote every single day, so set a reminder, uh, set an alarm, mark your calendar, do whatever you need to do, and uh, absolutely every single vote will be uh, very much appreciated. I think I think we have an actual chance of winning. Obviously, the show is nominated in the news and politics category. Thanks to everyone who nominated the show, by the way. 
And uh, yeah, so keep, keep going until January 13th. Secondly, I am fundraising for uh, what is referred to lovingly as the Polar Bear Plunge. Uh, that's happening January 25th, and I'm looking to raise $1,500 uh, between now and then. And if I do, uh, not only will I jump into the freezing cold Potomac River, I will also ride my bike the 15 miles, possibly through the snow, to get there. So that that is all to support the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the most effective local climate change organization working in the country, according to Bill McKibben, and the organization that I actually used to work for. So I know that they are you know doing a good job and worth fundraising for. Finally, today I wanted to address a Dave from Olympia, Washington, who's the last voicemail that we heard today on the uh, you know corporations and government and the morality of both. And I will admit right up front that his question gave me pause for a moment before I figured out sort of the fundamental flaw and where he's coming from. So I, I will start by saying he laid out an argument and answered it correctly. But what I think he did was laid out a slightly flawed argument, uh, you know, in, in its fundamentals. So he is correct that there is nothing inherently moral about a group of people getting together, writing some stuff on a piece of paper and agreeing to it. You know, if you, if you get together and you want to form a, you know, business corporation, you, you have some buddies, you write on a piece of paper that we agree to make as much money as possible, no matter the consequences. Agreed? Agreed. Yes, that's not inherently moral in any way. But the, the, the difference between, uh, what Dave laid out in, in sort of r relaying the parallels between government and corporations being simply pieces of paper, uh, contrived by people, is what's actually written on the piece of paper. Uh, the idea of the American government is that the, the government derives its morality not from the individuals who work in the government or those who are elected to office, but from the governed people themselves, those who can actually vote to control the actions of the government. That's what doesn't happen in a corporation. The corporations have no accountability to anyone outside of the corporation unless people are doing something actually illegal, whereas government is actually accountable the way it's set up. If, you know, if it works the way it's supposed to work, then those in the government are accountable to we the people. And we the people are the, you know, I would say only source of actual morality in the world. Some would argue it comes from religion. I would say that's really just a different way of it coming from people. So, of course, this brings us to the problem that we're having in government. I would definitely argue that the, the government is losing its grasp on morality. And I would argue that the reason that is happening is the undue influence of money in politics. It's, it's strange how that keeps coming up. I, I don't know, uh, I don't know the next time I'm going to have a show when that is not sort of the direct cause of the problems being discussed in the show. But basically what is happening is that there is a disruption between the way things are supposed to work, which is people see the world, want to influence it, vote for their government and, and lobby for policies that they agree with. And then the government should enact those policies. And instead, it is being influenced by enormous amounts of money, skewing it more towards the will of the corporations, which are amoral and, you know, don't have the same perspective that people do. So the money in politics is skewing the priorities of the government to be more in line with the priorities of corporations, which do not have morals, rather than having the priorities of the government fall in line with the priorities of the people who do have morals. So I would absolutely agree that the, our system of government is being corrupted and is currently sick, 
but it is not necessarily the fundamental system of government, which is flawed. And it's not a, a lack of morality as it is intended to be baked into the system. It is a corruption of that fundamental design. If you have thoughts, I'd love to hear them. The number 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. That is enormously uh, powerful and useful and totally free to you. So please check out uh, that URL, donateyouraccount.com. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained